This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. Welcome to Overdue. This is a podcast about the books that you have been meaning to read. My name is Craig. And my name is Andrew. And my name is Asma. Welcome, Asma. Uh, so this is our bonus episode for December, the month of December 2015, the last bonus episode of the calendar year 2015. Uh, and we thought that we would celebrate that uh, by welcoming on uh, one of our biggest Patreon supporters um, who helped us create bonus episodes. And then kind of jumped up to the top tier, which actually uh, brought her on the show to talk about a book. Yay. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so thanks for, for joining us. Um, we're going to be talking about Edith Wharton's Age of Innocence. Um, but first, like, tell us what you like to read. Because I think one of the things that we have built up over the course of the show is kind of listeners know a little bit about where Andrew and I are coming from. Um, but what kind of books do you like to read? How does that sync up with you listening to the show? Um, yeah. I, li- I like, I like a, a huge variety of, uh, I mean, I like to vary my reading. So, I mean, sometimes I'll just go from uh, reading something like Edith Wharton to, uh, maybe Richard Matheson or Stephen King and then to Ray Bradbury. So I like a variety of books. It's mostly if the if the plot is interesting or I like the writing style. It's usually what I go for. Tell me about the first book that you remember reading. I don't think this is a conversation that Craig and I have had before, but um, mine was uh, Green Eggs and Ham by Dr. Seuss, <laughs> which I recently got to give to um, a baby, like one of our friends' babies. I love giving babies books. Oh, it's so fun. <laughs> I can't say much about about the earliest book I read, but I remember I think the first chapter book I read was was Judy Bloom's uh, Tales of a Poor Great Nothing. Ooh, that's a good one. Mm-hmm. That's a very good choice. Now yeah. that's the one where um, Fudge eats the turtle, right? <laughs> yeah, that's the one. <laughs> oh, Fudge! <laughs> uh, I think mine might be. I don't have memories of the Velveteen Rabbit. Does that book have words? I don't yeah. remember. You're, <laughs> you're asking the wrong thing. Okay. Uh, I do remember a book. I don't know the name of the author called Are You My Mother? Which is about like a bird. Oh. That, is, it about, is it a bird that gets lost? I remember this book. Yeah, it's a bird and it keeps asking everything, including some big dog and like a backhoe or something. Yeah. Like, Are You My Mother? And it's... It looked like a Dr. Seuss book, but it wasn't it a wasn't. Dr. Seuss book. Yeah, my... um, it was by... Okay, I'm Googling right now. This is... Hello, Internet. This is... Uh, <laughs> it's a I Can Read It All By Myself beginner book. It has the cat in the hat on the cover, but it's by P.D. Eastman. I can read it all by myself, and I so did. I don't know if, like, if Dr. Seuss lost a bet and had to publish <laughs> this person's book, but... It's possible. 
I do remember it. Uh, yeah, that and Mike Mulligan's Steam Shovel are two of my earliest books that I can recall. Um, that's about a steam shovel that digs a big hole, and then they have to build the building around it at the end because it's trapped down there. <laughs> it's pretty cool. That sounds, that sounds great. <laughs> it's a okay. pretty good book. <laughs> uh, so when we invited you on, Asma, we kind of mm-hmm. wanted you to pick a book. Um why Edith Wharton, why was she on your list? We covered her a couple episodes ago on for Ethan Frome, but Age of Innocence was on our list already. So why Wharton? Well, it started when, when I saw the movie, The Age of Innocence. And at the time I was uh, looking for, you know, just a good audiobook to listen to. Mm. And um, I, I liked the movie so much that I went and got the audiobook. And it's the kind of, it's a kind of book that grew on me bit by bit the more I listen to it. I just uh, like to have it in the background because I like the narrator's voice so much. Mm-hmm. So, um, mm-hmm. and, and you know, as as I began listening to, to it uh, time after time, you know, I just began to appreciate, you know, the way she describes society and, uh, you know, the, the small details and... Um, you know about the the people the attitudes that kind of thing i have not seen that film is that the one with um michelle pfeiffer yeah michelle right? pfeiffer and uh, daniel day lewis and winona Ryder. which i think i, I mean the, the movie was gorgeous it's directed by martin scorsese and um I think I think uh, Daniel Day Lewis was the perfect pick for Newland Archer. I can't imagine any other guy playing Newland Archer. Really, is he attractive in that movie? Is he He's... an attractive man? No, <laughs> it, 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 that's the funny thing is. <laughs> the, no, the, the funny thing is that in the book, uh, Edith I think twice describes Newland as kind of an ugly man, or okay, at least great. he's ugly. <laughs> So I, I think I think Daniel Day Lewis he, he's not ugly but he's not conventionally handsome so I think he's a perfect fit to play Newland Archer. <laughs> okay, we'll dive into that as we get mm-hmm. into the book. Andrew, what did we <laughs> what did we want to say about Edith Wharton? Um, to kind of we did talk about her a little while ago, but was there anything you wanted to make sure we covered again or anything well, new? The- the one thing about her and um, and the Age of Innocence specifically that I wanted to talk about was that she won the nineteen twenty twenty one uh, Pulitzer Prize for fiction, mm-hmm. and she was the first woman ever to win the prize. Yes, I remember that. I remember that. And the the three judges who were um, who were judging the fiction part of the contest, like I I guess I've never been in the running for a Pulitzer Prize, so I don't <laughs> know what that process is like. But the three judges. Um, all wanted to give the prize to uh, Sinclair Lewis for um, the satire Main Street. But um, uh, Nicholas Murray Butler and the Columbia University Adver- Advisory Board um, overturned that decision and gave it to the Age of Innocence instead. So it wasn't like a unanimous decision to give the first woman ever a Pulitzer Prize. It was kind of a it was like a veto thing. I'm not sure how to feel about that feel good that history came down on the good side i don't know i haven't read that other book i can't compare or i haven't okay. read this book i can't really compare um i don't know yeah that is weird that it took a veto yeah i need to i guess i just need to learn more about the Pulitzer prize in general because i'm not i didn't i didn't know that 
decisions could be overturned. I don't know like anything about the judging process. I'm just totally ignorant, which is the engine of this podcast, I suppose. <laughs> but <laughs> uh, had you read any other Wharton before you tackled Age of Innocence? Um, last month? I, yeah, I, I read the uh, the House of Mirth, which I also enjoyed so much. I, I think I like her work just for the satire, but it's mostly those two books that heavily, you know, satirizes New York society. Yeah. Now, I think the the House of Mirth was supposed to be a little bit harder on New York society, like more critical of it than the Age of Innocence yeah, that, was. Yeah, that's true. Um, that I, true? Th- I think I think the Age of Innocence was kind of an apology for the House of Mirth uh, because because in the end, you know, it, it's. I, she comes down hard on on New York society and, and you know the hypocrisy, but I think that you know in the end she kind of says that there's good in the old ways, and hmm. and it's mm-hmm. it's it's her way of looking back at you know New York society back then. Well, let's and just want to dive into the book. Let's just do yeah, it. Yeah, let's let's do it. Um, to set the stage a little bit, um, this is about the Gilded Age of New York City. It's a very specific time in history where, um, like the American, like people who were working, like people who were doing well, were doing very well, and um, it led to a big influx of immigration into the United States, and that that same influx of immigration also led to a lot of poverty, a lot of inequality. Um, the South was still rebuilding from the civil war. Um, and so it's called the Gilded age because it seems on top, like a lot of the the stuff that has survived, like the, the, the stuff from people who were well off in society makes it seem like it was doing great. But then there was also this giant underclass of people who were not doing, not doing super great. So that's the, that's the backdrop um, where, that this book is kind of painted on, and um, Asma, I will let you take it from here. Yeah, I, I mean, um, I, I guess the Gilded Age. Uh, I think Mark Twain was the one who coined the term because it's his way of satirizing the era in which serious social problems were, you know, kind of like uh, covered with gold or you know just <laughs> ma- masked by gold. I guess so. Right. <laughs> so, which is exactly you know it's kind of the crux of this book. I mean, society chooses to ignore serious social problems and just pretend that you know they'll just go away. So, so the book's not about Michelle Pfeiffer or Danny Day Lewis, uh, <laughs> though I think we all will find out if we wish it was or not. Uh, who is it about, and what is going on? Okay, it start, it takes place in the 1870s in New York and opens with an opera night in the middle of winter. I think that's in the middle of an. Um, they have like a season for yeah. opera, and uh, in the beginning, you know, Newland ar- arrives late because that's what you do when you're uh, <laughs> in fashionable society. <laughs> you know, it's it's the thing, and uh, for him, that's the code by which he conducts himself and he sits in the in the box club where all the fashionable men in new york sits and you know he's looking at the opposite end of the theater at his betrothed may welland uh, where she sits in her family's box and and opposite him and uh, you know he's just watching her react to them watching faust and he begins to daydream about you know the honeymoon and uh, the way how he'll explain the the lights of literature to her. Um, mm. 
So anyways, wait, so he's looking forward to explaining things to her? Yeah, supposedly because you know uh, I think Ugh. she's ignorant of, uh, of all these things. <laughs> yeah, as a as a woman in mm-hmm. this in this society, of course she needs everything explained to her. Of, of course. <laughs> <laughs> but at that point, he's already betrothed to her. He knows he's going to marry her. This is a given. Yeah, they haven't officially announced it yet, but um, I think uh, how, how they put it in the book is that is he just recently, uh, she just let him know that she cared, which is how they said that she, it's like her way of accepting his proposal. Okay, okay. That, that she cared. That's it. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> I always find these courtship rituals in in books from this era, and that goes for American stuff and like British stuff. Very like odd because it just seems like if a if a single man and a single woman end up in the same room enough times, they're married, like, then they're engaged. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they're either married or they're related. That you can't be within eight feet of another person without that being true. <laughs> It's why it's why at the time men were not allowed to be in the same room because that was looked down upon. You would just get married right away. <laughs> that's good. Yeah, that's a good joke. Thanks. Thanks for not <laughs> laughing at it, though. No. <laughs> so they're going to get married. Uh, What's going to happen next? And then suddenly in comes Countess Olenska, uh, also known as Michelle Piper in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. okay, and and um, you know she sits there, and all the men starts start commenting about her, you know, because she came in, uh, she ran away from her husband, who was a complete brute. Uh, she married a Polish count, and uh, she she ran away from him, and um, you know the men were just commenting about how you know how dare she shows her face in society and. You know, how could her family support her just, you know, being there and showing up on an an opera night? So. And she ran away from him, but did she divorce him? Not yet. Okay. That is super scandalous. Yes. That's that's the that's the million dollar question for them is that will (laughs) she or won't she divorce him? But uh, I think the, the, the juicier part of that rumor is that she ran away with his secretary who helped her escape. Ruh row. Mm mm. So scandalous. <laughs> so yeah, so they're just you know um, commenting on that, and uh, you know this doesn't sit well with Newland because you know he's going to be married to that family, so he just you know stands up and heads to their box to you know kind of like sh- show his support, and uh, he asks May to announce their engagement, you know at, at the at the ball which takes place after the opera. I thought you were going to say in the middle of the opera, like, hey, <laughs> I'm late. I'm getting married. Shut up, Faust. Let's go. <laughs> Just yelling from box to box. Hey, everyone. Like, <laughs> we're getting married, yeah. We're getting married. That girl over there. Ignore the Polish count. <laughs> I love this woman. <laughs> I love her. Opera rules. Okay, so they're at the ball. Everyone knows they're going to get married. Yeah, everyone knows they're going to get married and... um you know, but at that point, the, the countess, uh, you know, did not attend the ball. So and they're just backing her up in spirit, at least, even if she's not okay. actually there. So what then follows is just, you know, uh, the stage of, you know, them going around and, you know, just announcing to families that they're engaged, you know, over the course of the coming days. 
Okay. Because that's what you do in New York society, I guess, you know, it's just you <laughs> reintroduce yourself as this, you know, an engaged couple and, you know, have this long period of engagement, which Archer really hates. <laughs> does he hate it because he, like, has to go do stuff that's about her? Like, why does he... He seems it, like a self-involved dude, so I'm just assuming that. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it is that, and and it's it's as he put it. I think it's like him, them parading him around like a captured, like a captured beast or something. <laughs> okay, is is how they put it. I think <laughs> like so. a King Kong. Yeah. <laughs> so while while they're on the, I mean, the first stop when they uh, in the, in their list of visits is of course the matriarch of the. A Welland family, the Mrs. Catherine Mingott, who is this, you know, like this elderly obese uh, grandmother. She, uh, <laughs> and 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 she's like, you know, the, that salty grandmother that everyone seems to have in their in their family. You know, she's like, she likes Archer for you know, um, for for wanting to rush into marriage while everyone wants to, you know, just prolong the engagement period. So she's she's like the tough matriarch who everybody's actually trying to impress she is she is but she, she she's she's very taken with archer and she she likes the fact that you know he's uh he's not willing to wait that he's just you know wants to go ahead and you know have the mar- marriage have the wedding as soon as possible yeah because i'm sure like kids kids these days and their long yeah, engagements are just totally ruining <laughs> the institution of she, she 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 also she kind of likes to do things her way she she moved out of um, they describe her her house as set somewhere in the wilderness of Central Park. <laughs> what? <laughs> Does she live in that castle that's in like the middle of Central Park? Something like doing? that, I think, oh because uh, she said, and she describes, you know, when she was moving out there, she was saying, "You'd think I'd be moving to California." And, <laughs> <laughs> that that's how far off because I think everyone uh, back then just lived in on Fifth Avenue or. <laughs> so um, they are in. They are literally in Manhattan. It's not like they're all just like chilling out in mm-hmm. the Hamptons or ever or whatever. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, they have houses in Newport, I guess. But um... well, who doesn't really? <laughs> <laughs> Manhattan was just smaller back then like there was a um there's a piece in Atlas Obscura that I really liked it's called the delights and perils of navigating New York City with a guidebook from 1899 and so they took a um like basically what would have been the equivalent of like a Fromer's tourist guide Mm. from the year 1899 and they walked around 2015 New York with it and it was actually it's the piece is cool because there are so many like so many things from the guidebook are still kind of around. Mm-hmm. Like there's one uh, there's one like prestige retailer that like the building is the same, but it's a Home Depot. Oh, now. no. Um, there are some restaurants that are still like have been continuously operating this whole time. It's it's really it's really cool. So, yeah, when I was th- this has almost nothing to do with the <laughs> well, book, but when ready. I heard about we were talking about we're, we're talking about like late 19th century New York. Mm hmm. I was just like, oh, this is a thing that I read that had something to do with that. It's it's a even back then, like it was a it was a place with a very strong like identity. So I think it's kind of funny that um people are saying, Oh, you live in Central Park, like you might as well live in California. 
<laughs> might as well live out in the wilderness because you're so far away from everything else that's happening. And it's yeah, like- funny because, uh, you know, even though they describe it as living in a metropolis, but, um, you know, everyone has kind of this like uh, small town mentality and where mm. everyone knows everyone. And, you know, the smallest thing can cause a scandal. Like, for that's example, if, point. If, if you show up uh, at at um, at a funeral and your veil is just a few inches too short, you know, that's kind of scandalous as well. So oh, no. you're showing too much chin. <laughs> Stop showing, showing chin. your weepy chin at my funeral. Pull that veil down. <laughs> so so they're getting married. He hates it. Grandma's moving to Central Park. <laughs> She's already she's already living in Central okay, Park, she's and, 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 in, okay. but she's you know because of her obesity she doesn't get to go out much, and she she lives on uh, the lower floor of her house, and uh, that's kind of uh, uh, that's also you know a cause of uh, you know the the fact. I think like her grandchildren, her you know sons and daughter and grandchildren are just so done with her <laughs> at this point. <laughs> <laughs> but they just let her have her way because you know she's she is a powerful matriarch and uh, while while they're there with her you know just ellen just happens to come in and uh you know she she was she she's been going around with this um notorious uh blackguard as they call him uh beaufort and um well catherine likes beaufort even though you know he comes from this a mysterious background. They can't. They can't place him. He ha- He's an Englishman, and but he's incredibly rich. So that kind of makes him okay. But <laughs> <laughs> do they like? Would they dislike him if he were British and poor? Yeah, they they wouldn't even acknowledge <laughs> his existence. I guess. Right, he would be British and and also no redeeming characteristics. <laughs> the, the way the way the, you know their attitude with foreigners is just you know it's like uh, you know they come here and and they go they go back there and repeat the same stupid stories about Americans and it's, it's, it's generally you know because when the discussion of her divorce came up, it's like you know uh, she says that. Uh, I mean, Ellen thinks that I thought it was okay for us to get divorced here. You, you know, mm. they're 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 like, no, that's what European society thinks of American that we uh, count that we are, we're okay with you know getting divorced when that's a no no here. So interesting. Okay. Mm-hmm. So how is how is her presence affecting Mister Archer? Mm. His his, I mean. Uh, she kind of she she just you know vaguely vaguely kind of you know tells him that you know I'll 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 see you at my house you know at five you know just just to you know just to just to talk and uh, you know and he's he's wondering you know uh, I'm just an engaged man and you expect me to come over to your house and what's that all about but he still you know just goes over and you know just sits and talks with her and that's when he begins you know to kind of uh, find out how she just you know she's happy to be home back home here in new york but at the same time you know she just uh, kind of has this flippant attitude about the whole you know structure of society and Hmm. at at the beginning this kind of rubs him the wrong way but he, he begins to see things her way and this kind of intrigues him you know all the things that matter to him all the conventions that he held so dear and 
you know, the way she stirs them up and just throws them away and, and kind of just agitates him in a way. And, hmm. and is it, how is it described? Like, is he like, he doesn't, I like that you use the word agitate because is that like he's upset about it, but he doesn't quite know why he's upset or is he like mad that he's wasting this time on stuff that she's telling him is unimportant? Yeah, it, it, it does agitate him in a way because, you know, all these conventions that he held close, that, uh, you know, she just uh, gets him thinking about them in a way that uh, he never thought about them before. Here it is. Uh, the things that had filled his days seemed now like a nursery parody of life or like the wrangles of medieval schoolmen over metaphysical terms that nobody had ever understood. A stormy discussion as to whether the wedding presents should be shown had darkened the last hours before the wedding. Uh, it just yeah, it just goes on and on. <laughs> it, it, it's, I think it just says that you know, Yanni. Oh, sorry, I just slipped in some Arabic there. Uh, yeah. It's it just goes to show that you know uh, the things that mattered most to him now just all of a sudden seem you know kind of silly. Just. Well, I think that, I mean, you mentioned a little bit earlier how insular this society mm-hmm. was. Like, it's it's New York, but it's a small town mentality where everybody knows everybody. Everybody knows what everyone is up to. I could see how somebody coming into this, this, like, atmosphere with, like, new ideas about how to do stuff would be just instantly and automatically, like, attractive to somebody else. Even if they, even if that person kind of hated those like those differences they'd still be attracted to them just by like virtue of how different they mm-hmm. were yeah that's true yeah I, I, that's exactly the the reason why he's suddenly growing more attracted to her it's because you know may represents everything that he once he once held in regard uh, you know back in society and now you know it all seems like you know just a parody of life and that mm-hmm. real life was happening elsewhere while everything else that's happening before him, you know, is just staged by these people. Now, how is she, how how does she embody this? Like she ran, she ran away from her previous marriage because she saw it was all fraud or he was, you know, you said earlier that he was a brute. Like what about her is convincing him that this is like the real deal? Yeah. <clears throat> so, um, so, so she she ran away from her for for her Polish husband because uh, I think they also discussed that in the beginning. Uh, I mean, the gentlemen who were sitting in the box, and yeah. one described mm-hmm. him as half paralyzed Polish count with a handsome head and long eyelashes. And okay. <laughs> So uh, I think it's indicated that, you know, not only, of course, it's it's kind of said explicitly that he was cheating on her because he was, mm. uh, they said that he was, you know, collecting China and women and paying a price, any price for both. So <laughs> oh, that's a really good line. I like that. So, and, and I guess it's kind of indicated that it, maybe he beat her or something. It was just, you know, incredibly cr- cruel to her. And, and that that was and that that was part of a system where that behavior was acceptable, like that that behavior was uh, to be a little on the nose, gilded over, right? 
It was, it was. No, no one <sighs> wanted to discuss the fact that, you know, she came from, from a horrible, she, she ran away from a horrible marriage. It's just that, oh, you know, just, just go back to your husband, you know, things will be fine. Oof. So what's Archer going to do about it? Well, him being a lawyer, he's been asked to kind of, uh, you know, convince her not to go ahead with the with the divorce. So he goes to her one evening and he tells her that, you know, I'm, I'm just here to discuss the case with you, especially since he's been shown a letter from her husband and her husband is the one who's been um, accusing her of, you know, since she ran away with the secretary, she's probably, you know, had an affair with him as well. And so Archer, you know, just goes to discuss things with her. And at the same time, he kind of wants to know whether this is true or not. Mm-hmm. So so when he does bring this up and she doesn't deny it or react to it in any way, he takes it as, as that, you know, an admission of guilt on her part. And instead of, you know, just supporting her case for divorce, because at the beginning he was like, you know, I hope she does get a divorce. She, she does deserve her freedom. And at some point he goes on to preach on how women should be free and, and, is, and as experienced as men are. But, you know, when push comes to shove, now he's like, you know, now that he finds out that she could have possibly had an affair, he, you know, changes his tune and just says, well, you know, it just, I think you should uh, forget about the idea of getting a divorce because, you know, horrors of horror that she would <laughs> divorce her husband and, and actually just marry this guy who rescued her or and she probably had, that she probably had an affair with. So he just uh, pushes the case for, you know, not divorcing. Just, you know, stay with your husband. Even if you're just going to stick around here, just, you know. Now, is that is that coming from his, like, own attraction to her, though? Like, does... does is that jealousy? Is that what you're saying, Andrew? Yeah, yeah. Like, does she does does he feel like she's she and he she and him could have been a thing? I think. I, but oh, if she's if she's the kind of woman who would run off and have an affair while she was already married, like no, that's not. That's kind. Of, that's kind of it. I'm not kind of it. That is it. Actually, it's, it's just that you know, he's engaged to be married to May, but he can't stand the fact that you know she could have had this affair and. Uh, this other married man, Beaufort, uh, the, the English gentleman, you know, comes to see her often and is probably trying to push her to become his mistress or something. Uh, he mm-hmm. can't stand that. So uh, it's all, most of his motivation is just, you know, out of jealousy for. Yeah. Um, it's It's funny how, you know, this type of story happens a lot at the turn of the 20th century around the Gilded Age and and in other countries with other authors as as you were saying earlier Andrew like the upper class kind of goes on this rocket ship where they're getting higher and higher and higher uh while everything else is getting worse and people are looking around and going those people who are going up are also getting worse and we need to talk about it uh but <laughs> it's funny where the line of taboo gets drawn where it's like, hey, I'm totally on board with you breaking this one rule because it seems like you have a good reason. But the second you break a rule that I don't like, then all of, everything you've done is tossed out the window. <laughs> You're a terrible person. Right. Yeah. It's just, I don't know. It, it's, it's almost like people are fickle and inconsistent. Hey, wait a second. <laughs> I've never heard of that before. <laughs> so, Asma, while, while this is happening, what is May doing? What is she up to? 
So so while this is happening, I mean, um, he's trying to just, you know, just to settle himself or just, you know, just uh, kind of end the conflicts that's happening inside him. He just wants to push me to, you know, advance the wedding date forward. And may, oh, really? Okay. And make kind of guesses that th- there's something going on because... I mean, before he got engaged to May, he had an affair with a married woman already for for about two years, I think. And uh, <laughs> and um, and and the thing is that she thinks that him rushing to advance, I mean, wanting to rush the date, is has to do with the fact that he he can't make up his mind, and so he just wants to, you know, just have the wedding over and done with, so that. Uh, because he's he's tied to someone else emotionally and just you know wants to cut off all ties or something. Mm. But uh, the thing is that she she thinks it has to do with that married woman that he had an affair with earlier and not Olenska. So you know at this point he, he kind of you know admires her for um, for having the insight because you know all this time he thinks that she's kind of stupid or I guess or something. You know, she's just this uh, society, society socialite. It's kind of and like yeah, kind it, of, it, it, she, yeah. She, she's you know she's a brilliant, she, beautiful young woman. She's you know accomplished athlete. She, she you know um, and um, well, does he not? Res- does he? Does he respect her? Does he? He kind he he's uh, as the book describes it. He's placidly in love with her, so he kind of. <laughs> You say in, placidly in, in love with they, her? They, yes, they, they actually use that term. I, 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 can, I can read you that part. The young man was sincerely but placidly in love. He delighted in the radiant good looks of his betrothed, in her health, her horsemanship, her grace and quickness at games, and the shy interest in books and ideas she was beginning to develop under his guidance. She was... Ah. <laughs> She she was straightforward, loyal, and brave. She had a sense of humor, chiefly proven by her laughing at his jokes, and he suspected in, and he suspected in the depths of her innocently gazing soul, a glow of feeling that would it would be a joy to waken. But when he had gone the brief round of her, he returned discouraged by the thought that all this frankness and innocence were only an artificial product. Untrained human nature was not frank and innocent. It was full of the twists and fences of an instinctive guile. And he felt himself oppressed by this creation of factuitous purity, so cunningly manufactured by a conspiracy of mothers and aunts and grandmothers and long-deceased ancestresses, because it was supposed to be what he wanted, what he had the right to, in order that he might exercise his lordly pleasure in smashing it like an image made of snow. So... This, I think this kind of sums up what he thinks of me. I mean, he is, he, he believes that he's in love with her, but, but you know, over the course of the book, he kind of feels like, you know, I'm just, I'm just in love with an image or something like that. And I mean, it, it makes it sound like it's, it's a checklist to be checked. Like, oh, is she good at horses? Okay, cool. She's good at horses. Check. Mm-hmm. What, what games is she good at? Catan, yeah. poker. Okay. It's a list of things you would use to describe like a child that you would take in off the streets or something well, like it's really where, good at horses. He... I'm teaching it about books <laughs> like things are she's... going really well. It's just yeah, she's the... really loyal. She's really brave. It sounds like a 
dog. Yeah. Right. Like the, like, the way that she feels about or thinks about anything as like a human being, it's just not, it's not even a factor. And it, I mean, that it sounds like that's what's normal in this society, which is probably why he's, he's not cool with it. Like under, uh, under the surface. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I mean, and uh, before, uh, you know, the Countess Olenskik walked in, he was, you know, just happily in love with her. But, you know, as soon as she starts, you know, just talking to him and, you know, just uh, throwing away society's convention like that. And, you know, it, it just kind of you get the feeling that as if he just, you know, woke up and just realize that, you know, I'm, I'm just marrying this girl because that's what I'm supposed to do, you know, just mm. marry this conventionally pretty and, you know, wonderful uh, girl. And, and and I mean, I think that that's kind, it's just kind of being unfair to, toward her. I mean, even if she kind of subscribes to the same conventions that he once did, but she has these moments of insight, you know, moments when she suspects or knows something and... But at the same time, you know, she can't um, she can't break away from what she's been taught. Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's it's totally not her fault that that's what she was brought up with, right? Like, mm-hmm. it's, and and the fact that man. you know she she wanted to break off their engagement uh, when she was asking him, you know, if the, if there's another woman, it's it's just because she does not want to build their marriage on an unhappiness. So she was just basically telling him, you know, just forget about me and just go marry that other person. If Hmm. you think that will make her happier. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Well, and yeah, does, does Olenska like want him at all? What is that? What is her side of it? So after he has this conversation with me, he goes back to Olenska and, um, you know, it seems like, uh, the, the marriage, you know, is, won't be advanced and everything. So he just went, goes back to Olenska and just talks to her. And then that's when he realizes that, you know, she never had any affair and that kind of changes his mind all of a sudden. And, and, Again. And, 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 <laughs> and, and, and that, and that, you know, he, he, now he, th- he says that, Oh, so, so he, he doesn't explicitly says it, but it's, it's like in his mind that, oh, so if she didn't have the affair, so she can, she can still get that divorce. And, and, and me and uh, I can marry Ellen Olenska. But at this point, you know, <laughs> 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 but, but at this point, you know, just Ellen says, you, you can't, you can't do that. You know, you can't just. You know, just after he came back uh, from May and and told her that there is no other woman, and that you know I'm, I'm set on marrying you. You can't just go back and say say that. Yeah. Jokes on you. There is one. Yeah. She's, she was here the whole time. Yeah, exactly. So she, actually, Ellen reciprocates his. You know, she acknowledges his feelings and reciprocates them, but she says that. The only reason I avoid, I listened to you and I did not divorce my husband was because I feared, you know, bringing scandal onto you and your family. Mm. And that, that's the only reason I had nothing to fear from that letter. And, you know, at this point, so it was like a point of no return. So she says, I'm, you know, I'm sorry, that's too, it's too late now. I feel like that's, 
that's like the 19th century version of I'm just not that into you. Like I don't, <laughs> it feels like an excuse to me. Like, Oh, I, I would get married to you, but no, I just, I just can't like society is getting in my way. Like I'm, <laughs> otherwise, <laughs> otherwise I'd be totally down. I think, I think for her, you know, coming fr- from a background in which, you know, her, her husband was, you know, cheating on her. I think she, mm-hmm what she sees in New York society is at least in the beginning is that, you know, everyone is so, um, you know, um, there's all this nobility and, um, well, it seems like there's a predictability and like a stability to it too. Like, even though it's, it's a little boring to the people who are in it, like from the outside, it must look very peaceful and, and like easy to navigate. Yeah, exactly. I mean, um, um, she she sees some good in Archer that he doesn't see in himself. You know the fact that he's willing to, you know, stick by traditions and family, and you know because that's what she ran away from is you know the instability of her society um, back home. So where is that kind of where we're left by the end? No, no, no. Gonna... <laughs> that's that's only at at the end of book one. So. Oh boy. Okay. <laughs> oh boy. Yeah. Exactly. So he goes. She, he goes ahead with the marriage, and um, you know he's stuck in this loveless marriage, but he still wants to pursue uh, some something with Odanska. He, he's not sure what, and at the same time, she's being pressed by her family to go back to her husband. So between her between her family and Archer's advances, you know, she just. Uh, tries to you know just run away into to Washington or something like that, and uh, but she she comes back you know when when the Mrs. Catherine Mingott you know uh, has an has a stroke, and uh, you know she just goes back to take care of her, and that's when Archer really presses her you know just to you know become his mistress or something, and and the thing the thing is. Um, at some point, she kind of gives in, and she says, "Okay, I'll just, you know, I'll just come to you once, and then that will be that." And at this point, you know, she, she, it's kind of like she, she's disillusioned by him, and all these uh, notions of nobility, you know, just kind of collapse. But before she does that, um, she announces that she's going back to Europe, not to her husband, but just to have her own independent life in Paris. Because she can't, she can't handle Manhattan anymore. It's too fake. It's too many phonies. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, so, um, <laughs> and when she when she does that, and they have this farewell party um, after after it's done, she uh, she leaves, and Archer goes to his wife and says, "Well, you know, I think I have some business in Europe, so I might travel there, and you know, just stay a while, and I don't know when I'll be back." And uh, she says, well, that's fine, dear, but um, I, and I hope I can join you, but I hope the doctor will allow me. And that's her way of announcing the fact that she's pregnant now. And, oh. And, and, and that's when uh, she says to, to Archer that, well, actually, I, I, was, I wasn't sure until this morning, but I told Ellen two weeks ago. And uh, the fact that when she told Ellen, I think that's when that was the, you know, the nail in the coffin that or or the, you know, the thing that drove her away. The fact that she was in the way of family and mm. and that's when Archer, you know, just finally gave in and said, you know what, I, I think I'll I'll just stay here and, and raise my family. 
He sounds so excited about that. <laughs> it's it's like you know he suddenly just you know gave in, and uh, I think it, it was just you know for him a long struggle, and it's like all of a sudden he realized that he can't win. It, it's it's the fact is that I think he wanted you know the 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 best of the two worlds. The fact that you know he can have this ideal. Uh, he he wanted you know this like uh, idealized reality in which uh, he can possess both the Countess Olenska to himself, but at the same time maintain you know this uh, facade of marriage and duty and everything. Yeah, and is is wanting both of the, those things what the book is critiquing? Like, what is the book? What is Wharton? getting at what is she pointing at and going hey look at this i think she's pointing at the fact that you know he was brought up in a certain way and even though at some point he kind of tries to you know shake off these conventions but the thing that he couldn't shake off in the end was you know the the goodness of the way he was brought up Hmm. and um i think it's there's a, there's a line that says that something he knew he had missed the flower of life but he thought of it now as a thing so unattainable and improbable that to have repined would have been like despairing because one had not drawn the first prize in a lottery hmm. so so it's like it's like you know pursuing the things that you want versus you know your sense of duty and i think that was um what he was brought up on i i guess so so we talked earlier about how uh this is almost like a softer version of House of Mirth or like kind of a An apology, apology yeah. for it, right? Uh I have, you know, Andrew, you haven't read either of those, right? Cuz I, I know not. I haven't. Of course, of course I haven't. not. That's this that's why it's on the show. <laughs> um so what is it kind of what you just said Asma, kind of makes it sound like yeah, he was limited by his upbringing and by his status, but it's not something ultimately to hold against him. It's just something that we should kind of mourn for him in a way. What is different about House of Mirth? Like, how do those two books relate? So the House of Mirth, you know, um, I mean, she criticizes society ruthlessly, but there was a glimpse of that in one part of of the book. I mean... Uh, it's when a married man drew, had drawn in uh, the main character, Lily Barr, to mm-hmm. his house, you know, and she was alone. She thought that she was going there to visit his wife, but his wife was in the country house. And Uh-oh. That, and, and that's, you know, he just drew her in, you know, just to have her to himself. And, um, you know, that he was, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it, it was exactly that kind of scenario, but... Um, you know, he, he kept on trying to, you know, advance towards her, but, you know, nothing happened in the end because uh, she, I think they say that, you know, old old training and old, old beliefs kind of kicked in and that's when he just, you know, had the sudden awareness of what he was about to do and then he just let her go just like that. Mm. So that, that moment of self-awareness is mm-hmm. crucial. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, you know, he could have just... Yeah, went with uh, yani what he with what he was planning except that you know it's the way he was brought up it just uh, held him back in a way yeah it sounds like there's even more of that going on in age of innocence like people are people are too aware of of what they were brought up with <laughs> <laughs> 
is who is is it Newland's story? Is it Ellen's story? It's is Newland, it their it, story? <clears throat> it's Newland's story. It's it's uh, it's from his perspective mostly. Okay. And um, you know everything, his prejudices, his thoughts, and um, I mean even sometimes it kind of masks how you see the other characters. Of course, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, because yeah, yeah he, he just assumes that you know May is ignorant while Ellen is passive. When that is that, that's not exactly true. Um, I think it, it's not in the way he describes things, um, but. It's just, you know, how they act. Well, that's just what really good first-person fiction can do is kind of shine a light on how people, how easy it is to assume that your perspective of someone is a fact. Yeah. <laughs> like, I remember that a lot from Ethan Frome. Like, the, the, the way that the characters that are not him are depicted in that book are really unflattering. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that's probably not empirically true. Right, they probably are just as complex as he is. If they were real people, they're not. But uh, yeah, it's really easy for 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 you to. Eh, it's it's gonna sound like platitudes because then it's getting don't judge a book by its cover and stuff like that. But that's that's kind of <laughs> what it is, I guess. Right? And platitudes are up. platitudes for a reason, right? Like maybe don't judge a book by its cover. Please don't. Or maybe do like some of these characters. It sounds like all there is to them is the is the cover. But maybe that's like what society has encouraged in them. Like they, <laughs> yeah, and and they, you know, because they've been trained not to express themselves, so it's kind of right. hard to know what what they're thinking. Mm-hmm. So, for example, you know, at some point he he was after he got married to May, he he was going to see uh, went to he was going to I think uh, maybe Boston to go see. The Countess Olenska, and uh, it, it was just under the excuse of him having a case there. So she, May was like, "The change will do you good," she said simply when he had finished. And when you must be sure to go and see Ellen," she added, looking him straight in the eyes with her cloudless smile, and speaking in the tone she might have employed in urging him not to neglect some irksome family duty. <laughs> it was, <laughs> it was. It was the only word that passed between them on the subject. But in the code in which they had both been trained, it meant, of course you understand that I know all that people have been saying about Ellen and heartily sympathize with my family in their effort to get her to return to her husband. I also know that for some reason you have not chosen to tell me. You have advised her against this course, which all the older men of the family, as well as our grandmother, have been approving, agree in approving. And that it is owing to your encouragement that Ellen defies us all and exposes herself to the kind of criticism of of which Mr. Silter Jackson probably gave you this evening, the hint that had made you so irritable. Hints had hints had not indeed been wanting, but since you appear un, unwilling to take them from others, I offer you this one myself in the only form in which well-bred, in which well-bred people of our kind can communicate unpleasant things to each other. By letting you understand that I know that you mean to see Ellen when you are in Washington and are perhaps going there expressly for that purpose, and that since you are sure to see her, I wish you to do so with my full and explicit approval and to take the opportunity of letting her know what the course of, her con- uh, what the course of conduct you have encouraged her is likely to lead to. 
Her hand was still on the key of the lamp, and when the last word of this mute message reached him, she turned the wick down and lifted the globe and breathed on the sulky flame. They smell less if the one blows up them out, she explained, <laughs> with the bright <laughs> with the bright housekeeping air. <laughs> I love that there are two pages of subtext for like two lines of dialogue. I love that it. That's amazing. That's the best look ever. I don't think I've ever communicated that much just by looking at someone. I can't communicate mm-hmm. that much with like my mouth and my words. <laughs> But I love that Wharton also then gives you, like, her turning off the lamp and mm-hmm. saying an inane thing. Like, that's what I like the most about uh, Virginia Woolf. And I, I, there's a definite, definitely a comparison to be made. That's interesting. It's only uh, only after he receives the telepathic message, though, does she turn the lamp off. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> so we're kind of we're coming to the close of our time. Is mm-hmm. That's a great passage i think that illuminates some of what you were saying earlier about what you really like about this book mm-hmm. yeah uh, I, yeah the, the these kind of uh, you know she just gives you this insight i mean you can imagine may as being you know this bright and happy housewife who just have this complicated thing going on underneath you know that facade that she puts forward and and i like having those glimpses and 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 that's what's Wharton does so well is you know mm. she these small things that you know just gives you a glimpse of you know what, what the characters are thinking without them saying much yeah of course mm-hmm. because there's I mean the society is so reserved that people did just they didn't they didn't speak their minds a whole lot it was it was all like y- y- you having to read in between the lines and then in between the lines that you're reading in between and just like <laughs> down and down and we have that kind of thing in our society here as well. So I, I love that. I, I mean, you know, you kind of, you know, go to social events and, you know, you see people acting one way and then just reading between the lines. And, you know, I, I like when someone articulates it this way. So mm-hmm. I guess that's what I enjoyed most about the book. Yeah. Well, cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, thanks for coming on the show. This has been great. <laughs> thanks for uh, having me. Yeah. Uh, if you, the listener out there, uh, have also read Age of Innocence and want to share some of your favorite quotes, because apparently there's some awesome quotes from this book. Really good quotes. Uh, I'm just like sitting raptly every time, every time you I read love anything. <laughs> yeah. Uh, please tweet them to us, uh, or put them on our Facebook page at twitter.com slash overdue pod or facebook.com slash overdue pod. Uh, you can also email in, uh, your reasons for running away from a Polish count, to overduepod <laughs> at gmail.com. Uh, Andrew, if people wanted to find out, uh, if they wanted to go listen to our previous episode about Ethan Frome, like what is one of the ways they could do that? Um, they could go to overduepodcast.com and find our iTunes, Stitcher, and RSS pages. Those are all ways that they can subscribe to the show, um, find old episodes, and download new episodes every time they come out. Um, we also have links up there to uh, Amazon. So if you want to read ahead or read a book that you've heard us talk about, you can click those links and buy the book and that supports us. Um, you can also do what um, Asma has done and go to patreon.com slash overdue pod and give us some support that way. That's like a continuing donation and it's a way to keep us in hosting and in books and in other things that other like schemes and things that we want to get into. I think Craig, you and I have p- 
plenty of schemes that we would like to bring into fruition in 2016. And, yeah, and those wouldn't be able to happen. Those wouldn't be possible if we didn't have the bedrock of support that we do have. You know, it's not like, uh, you know, every ounce of support we get just goes right out the window in, like, glee on our part. Um, we're, like, trying to save up for cool stuff and trying to pick up some new equipment when we need it. Um, so it's it's really great to have that core of people uh, supporting us. And that also extends to the, the very vocal core of people uh, who reach out to us every week to let us know that they're enjoying the show because that also keeps us going. So thanks for that. Um, so I'm not sure when you, the listener, are going to be hearing this episode. Uh, you'll probably already have heard our final, hopefully, Fifty Shades of Grey podcast. Um, we're planning some holiday stuff. But, um, yeah, whenever uh, whenever the next Monday is, we're going to post another episode. <laughs> and we hope that, that you will like right. it. sounds right. Yeah. <laughs> Asma, thanks again for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thanks. All right, everybody. Uh, until next Monday. Everybody try to be happy. That was a headgum podcast.